Hey y'all, last time around when I spent my anniversary episode taking a serious look at the state of black history education, I promised you a fun clip show, and here it is. When I invite guests on the show, I ask them to bring at least one story of an individual to the conversation because, to me, stories about people are what really bring history to life. And from that request, we've gotten to learn about some really cool people I'd never even heard of before. So this episode, I managed to narrow it down to six of the coolest people discussed on this show. And the first person we're going to talk about, the first clip I've been calling, Just Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, which is the story of Harry Green from Black Fathers vs. Slavery and the way that he managed to be a forceful presence in his son's life despite not living on the same plantation. The son talks about the fact that his mother would wait until the father came on Wednesday or on Sunday and have him basically do any sort of discipline that needed to happen. She would wait and he would make decisions. So what you see in this case is that this is a man who didn't live with his family for most of the week, but his son certainly sees him as the head of the family. That cabin would be in the woman's name. But the son perceives his father as an important figure and in fact talked about his father at length and how important his father was in shaping his sense of religion, his sense of self, his attitude towards work. His father was providing education because his father had a rudimentary education. His father bought him his first book. So his father was hugely important in terms of his identity. I really love how that one exemplifies the title Black Fathers versus Slavery because truly the entire institution of slavery made fatherhood difficult, made fatherhood a fight. And on the subject of fatherhood and paternal legacy, the next clip is from Who Freed the Slaves, the first episode of this show. And it's why I keep centering these stories about individuals, because I really didn't know what was going to happen. But the story of Duncan Winslow and his influence on his two grandsons is just powerful and so good. Here's a guy who had been enslaved in Tennessee. He escaped from slavery during the war, joined the Union Army, uh, fought for his own freedom, was wounded for his own freedom, almost died for his own freedom. So at Fort Pillow, he was, uh, he was shot, wounded in the arm, wounded in the leg, pretended to be dead just so Confederate soldiers would pass him by, and they did. He kind of rolled over into some bushes and hid there until dark, made his way down the hill to the, to the uh, Mississippi River uh, and was picked up by a Union gunboat, got transported to a Union military hospital, uh, spent uh, several weeks recovering there. And then after the war, uh, settled in Illinois, became a farmer there, uh, sold produce from door to door. Uh, and in, in Illinois, African-Americans had the right to vote. So one day, uh, and he, his arm that he was wounded in, it was so badly wounded that he lost the use of that arm, or at least the effective use, the full use of that arm for life. As this Republican politician, I presume it was a Republican, he just said a politician, was making the rounds, campaigning for, for votes, uh, he made the comment to Duncan Winslow that, uh, hey, come election day, you know, don't forget uh, that... Uh, uh, we we freed you people, and Duncan Winslow kind of raised his mangled arm and showed it to the man and said, uh, it looks to me like I, I freed myself. That sums up the attitude that I want to portray in this book. I'll just read you uh, this paragraph that um, tells the story of Rollins and Henry. 
I said, they've, they stood on the sh- shoulders of men like Duncan Winslow, a former slave, a Union veteran, wounded survivor of Port, Fort Pillow, who worked out his life as a farmer in Illinois uh, and never learned to sign his name. But his grandsons, Rollins and Henry, although they went to segregated schools in the 1920s and were denied access to uh, the local public library, grew up with a chest full of books and encouragement to read. Both eventually earned graduate degrees. Rollins entered the ministry. Uh, Henry went into teaching. And for their opportunities, they always credited their grandfather, Duncan. When a white politician tried to rewrite his own history, Duncan Winslow told it like it was and put himself in the story where he belonged, which is amazing. And the story was super personal, emotional for Professor Williams, if you listen to the whole thing. But now let's shift. We talked about a lot of black women on this show, too. And I definitely want to highlight some of their stories just in the Black Feminist Movement episode, there were so many really influential women. And trying to pick one, I settled on Mary McLeod Bethune and the way that she gained political power and influence in the face of disenfranchisement. Meet Mary McLeod Bethune. Mrs. Bethune had begun her public life as an educator. And she founds a girls' school in Daytona, Florida, which is today Bethune-Cookman University, still thriving. Mrs. Bethune is a suffragist. And in those years surrounding the 19th Amendment, she is organizing and educating and getting Black women registered into the polls. She faces extraordinary unchecked violence in the state of Florida, organized Klan violence that is for a time, going to defeat the aspirations of Black voters in the state of Florida. But Mrs. Bethune isn't done. And by the 30s, she's come to Washington, in part to create the National Council of Negro Women, which is an umbrella organization now that is going to bring together Black women's organizations of many sorts under the auspices of the council. And she is going to make an impression on Franklin Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt, so much so that Roosevelt will invite her to help him organize what is colloquially remembered as his Black cabinet. These are the years of violent, still disenfranchisement of many Black Americans. But what Bethune knows and what she's able to show President Roosevelt is that you can do an end run around disenfranchisement. Bethune could not be elected to public office from her home state of Florida, but she could be appointed to federal office by Roosevelt. And she is responsible for introducing the president and ushering in a generation of black women to Washington who come to staff New Deal agencies that are organizing the relief work that is bringing the country and now Black Americans, too, out of the Depression. So Mrs. Bethune is a remarkable figure for many reasons, but in part because she is her own kind of strategist and understands that just because you're disenfranchised doesn't mean you sit down, doesn't mean you stay home, it doesn't mean you wait for someone to hand you voting rights. Mrs. Bethune knew that Black Americans needed power and they needed it right then. And she finds a way 
to do that work remarkably in the 30s and the 40s, despite the fact that she remains formally disenfranchised in Florida. Mrs. Bethune did so much working against both sexism and racism at the same time, like many of the Black women before her and after her, because she didn't live to see the Voting Rights Act. And one of those women who fought after her, who did live to see the Voting Rights Act and meet a president, but is probably less well-known than Mrs. Bethune, is Georgia Gilmore, who was one of the domestic workers at the head of the civil rights movement featured in Workers Not Servants about Black domestic worker organizing. Her name was Georgia Gilmore, and she was a, she had multiple occupations. She was a midwife, she was a nurse, she was a domestic worker, and she was a cook. And she actually began her own one-woman boycott of the buses well before Rosa Parks, right before her arrest. And Georgia Gilmore, once the boycott started, began to support it. And then she went out and she contacted other domestic workers and she started to raise money for the boycott. And these domestic workers, they sold chicken dinners, they made pies and cakes, and they made these dinners and they sold them to other people in the neighborhood and raised money. And they called themselves a club from nowhere because they were very concerned about being fired by their employers. And they raised hundreds of dollars and they presented it to the mass meetings in Montgomery. And Georgia Gilmore was eventually fired in large part because of her political activity. She, she went on to start a little restaurant out of her home. And that restaurant became a kind of a meeting ground for really important people. Martin Luther King often had meetings there. John F. Kennedy came to her home to have a meal. And so she really, I think, embodies the ways in which domestic workers have played a leading role in affecting political change. Yes, and a big reason why Black women generally and domestic workers particularly were often sidelined and not recognized in these movements was because they were doing work associated with womanhood and the home, like cooking food that they used to fundraise. But while these Black women were being ignored, they were also doing so much for the movement. Which brings us to our next story about Leo Robinson and dock workers in San Francisco protesting apartheid in South Africa, which was a world away, but they were still willing to go without pay and to risk their jobs because they believed it was wrong and wanted to do something about it. This one's from the May Day episode. To protest racial oppression in South Africa, for the system known as apartheid, what could these dock workers do about it? Well, on multiple occasions... They would refuse to unload cargo from South Africa to protest the politics of South Africa. Most famously in 1984, the height of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and worldwide, when a ship came in with South African cargo, they basically unloaded all the cargo that was not from South Africa. And then they walked off the ship and said, we're not going to unload the South African cargo. That was illegal, but they did it anyway. This had been planned in advance. So only people committed to that were dispatched to that ship. That also means they're not getting paid. They were taking money out of their families' mouths in order to protest against racism in South Africa, a place that none of them had ever been. For 11 days, this cargo stayed and it became this huge protest in San Francisco that became very influential in the Bay Area, including among students from UC Berkeley, who just a few months later started to create massive protests against apartheid on their campus in Berkeley across the Bay. The people who became the leaders of this action were deeply respected within their union and outside of it. And in fact, 
the black man who led that action, Rio Robinson, who when he passed away and I think it was 2013, the South African government awarded him something called the Nelson Mandela Medal, which goes to a non-South African, right? And I actually flew out from Illinois to go to the Union Hall where the South African ambassador to the U.S. presented Leo's widow at his Union's Hall uh, with this honor. And so it was a beautiful to witness. Hundreds of people were in this Union Hall. To be that invested in protesting injustice somewhere else is wild, and it really shows the importance of Africa and the diaspora in the telling of Black American history. Those ties really are important to how Black history plays out in America. And now, for our final story, it's probably my favorite story, and it's from the original abolitionists about how Black people had to take their safety and their freedom into their own hands, just like Amelia Robinson. Uh I love this story about Amelia Robinson. So Amelia Robinson is a Black woman, a widow living in her 50s. And she writes into the Daily Creole, this Black newspaper in Louisiana that debuted maybe one month before Charles Sumner's beating. So a little, a little context, Charles Sumner is a white radical abolitionist who gives this incendiary speech about slavery and basically starts calling folks out and saying like, oh, you love slavery. You love slavery because she's your, she's your harlot, right? And he's like using all this sexual imagery to talk about like how planners are sleeping with their slaves and, and all of this stuff that people prefer not to talk about, certainly not in public, let alone in private. And anyways, Charles Sumner, because of his speech, gets beat within each of his life. He gets caned by Preston Brooks, who basically says, I heard your speech and it's liable and I won't stand for it. And, and he beats him in his Senate chamber. Charles Sumner can't really do anything. He hides under his desk. His desk is bolted to the ground. And so it's like a holding pin. And Preston Brooks continues to beat him basically until his cane breaks. And Amelia Robinson, this becomes national news because it happens in the Senate chamber. And so it's not like this was like some sort of street fight or bar fight. This is in the Senate chamber. And so it's national news. Amelia Robinson reads about this and she calls Preston Brooks a coward. She calls him a cringing puppy. She says she would meet him any place with pistols, rifles or cowhides. She said she would choke him out. And then she says, because, you know, Charles Sumner wasn't able to defend himself. She says, you're afraid to meet a man. Dare you meet a woman? And I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> but I'm like, this is remarkable because it's not like Robinson was like writing to her girlfriend. Oh, I'm so upset about this incident. She was like, let me pin this op-ed. Let me put it in the paper. Let me tell you exactly how I feel. Like, this is a challenge, a challenge to you, Mr. Brooks. And I think that was actually the title of the op-ed was like a challenge to Mr. Brooks. And I just love it. It's just so unapologetic and it's so forceful and courageous. And and I, I have no doubt that she meant what what she said and given the opportunity her 50 year old 50 year old self would have no doubt that like all right breast preston let's do this <laughs> like, um you know that to me is just like it's, it's wild that by far is one of my favorite stories i wish i knew more about her all i can get is sort of like what she includes in the article but it's, it's amazing and if there was more on her there should be a book <laughs> Just based on that, I've been alone. 
That story was a perfect conclusion to that episode and to this one. So I'm fully committed to keep going and keep bringing you We the Black People. I just want to say thank you to all my listeners for coming along on this ride with me. At one point, I thought this episode was going to be full of clips about some of the most interesting things I've learned from my guests in this last year. But oof, we would have been here all day. There's just so many things that I've learned and I hope you've learned a lot too. And that this podcast has helped you in some way. It's opened your eyes to something. It's lit a fire in you. It's encouraged you. Or it's even just made you more curious about history outside of what you traditionally find in textbooks. Thank you for tuning in and I'll see you in January. I'm going to take December off to rest a little. And if you like the show, always share it. Follow me on social media. It's at We The Black People Pod on Facebook and Instagram and at We The Black Pod on Twitter. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Go check out the backlog of episodes if you're not caught up. and. All power, all people, y'all.